Hey, church. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders at Church in the Square. Please open your Bibles and meet me in Romans chapter 13, verse 1. This recording is actually <laughs> happening after the fact of our Sunday gathering due to some uh, technical difficulties. I'm recording this in my uh, home office, and so I just think it's important contextually, kind of the space that uh, I'll be in, though I'll deliver it, uh, the message that is in a way, hopefully, that uh, is uh, true and authentic to God's word, also just true and authentic to the space you find yourself um, in as you hear it. Uh, we're starting, or rather we did start a new chapter in Paul's uh, letter on Sunday, yet his flow of thought is uninterrupted. He's been talking about various relationships within the Christian life. And in chapter 12, if you remember, we learned about four basic relationships, our relationship with God in verses one and two, and then in three through eight about our relationship with ourselves. And then from there on through verse 16, we learned about our relationship with one another and on into 21, uh, our relationship even with our enemies. And now as we move into chapter 13, the apostle develops three more broader relationships with the state and government in verses one through seven, and then with the law in verses eight through 10, and then even with time, especially as it pertains to the return of Christ in verses 11 through 14. Now, as you can see, the writer is essentially moving from the inside out, from our most intimate and central relationship with the Lord to our relationships with our spiritual community, our country, and even our future. And so we find ourselves in the middle of this development of healthy Christian behaviors and relationships. And uh, in this moment today, we'll tackle one of the most complicated and misunderstood relationships, and that is the relationship between the state or government and the church. One Bible teacher had a particular problem with this passage. He was so repulsed by its teaching, he not only thought that Romans 13, 1 through 7, wasn't written by Paul, but also, he found it incompatible with Christianity. He went as far as to say that no biblical text has brought more unhappiness or misery than this one. Of course, he's not alone. Many modern Bible readers find incredible issue with Romans 13, citing its permissiveness toward unjust and corrupt government leaders. Yet, a scholar, Dr. Esau Macaulay, sees in this passage the beginning of a Christian theology of policing, which he talks a great deal about in his book, Reading While Black. So it's easy to understand why there's so much disagreement and tension around this text. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul says to us today, be subject to the governing authorities. This is a direct violation of our modern psyche. Being subject to anyone or anything is contrary to our cultural value system. That's why in the Avengers, when Loki tells a crowd to kneel and that they were made to be ruled, our hearts took courage when we saw an elderly gentleman stand to his feet in defiance. That's why when Miley Cyrus sings, I can take myself dancing and I can hold my own hand. Yeah, I can love me better than you can. We rejoice that a woman is not subjected to Liam Hensworth or any man for that matter. And that's why when political figures or governing powers demand our blind trust or complete allegiance, we bristle at the thought. So in order to understand how to respond to this teaching 
and our innate sense of autonomy, we must think deeply about what Paul has to say about government, God, and the church here in Romans 13. And that's what I'd like to talk about today. I want to talk about Christian civility. What does it mean to be a citizen of heaven, yet, in most of our cases, a citizen of the United States or whatever country you happen to live in? Here's how we'll organize our time. The purpose of government, the authority of God, and the civility of the church. The purpose of government, the authority of God, and the civility of the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, left to ourselves, um, this word will only confuse, maybe upset, or comfort us in inappropriate ways. And so we need your spirit. We need your spirit to work in and through your word today to open up uh, the, the eyes of our heart, to soften our hearts, to shape us more into your image, that we would think rightly, that we would love rightly, and that we would act rightly in accordance with your word, especially in our relationship with governing authority. So we ask for your help in this, and I ask that you would help me to be available to you to this end. In Jesus' name, everybody agreed and said amen. So let's look at the first verse together. Romans 13, verse 1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So in thinking about the purpose of government, we must first consider who instituted or established or invented government. And Paul says pretty plainly, God did. God instituted government. So our next question is naturally why? What for? What's the purpose of government or governing authorities? Well, we have to go back to the very beginning to fully appreciate the purpose of government. You see, God created the world as a world of order. He, of course, is the God of order. His world had moral rules and seasons and ecosystems. And not only did God lay out consequences for violating his designed order, but God also gifted, gifted this order and this orderly world to people. The writer of Genesis captures it this way in Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over everything, rather every living thing that moves on the earth. So in God's orderly world, people are commissioned to be fruitful. They're called to fill the earth and God gives them dominion. In other words, under the authority of God, human beings are given a level of authority over creation. God's world is orderly, and people are called to steward his world in orderly ways. Yet, if they did not steward his creation properly, according to his purposes, then he warned them that chaos and disorder and death would enter the human story. And of course, that's exactly what happened. Soon, soon sin rather soon entered the story. It comes and brings death and catastrophic disorder. Instead of living in loving harmony with God and each other in creation, our first parents violated the created order and the authority entrusted to them. Ever since, we've been battling for order and happiness and safety and justice. And as long as we've chased after these things, this renewal, we've failed to capture it, haven't we? Capture that goodness and that shalom of these first days of humanity. So we see that God's creation is orderly, yet sin-disordered creation. We now live in this space in between, a world meant for order, disordered by sin. 
in this in between, God has graciously made three institutions to bring restoration and healing to this fractured world through the power of Christ. And you'll have to excuse the fact that each of these will be very briefly overviewed and is certainly a massive oversimplification of these three institutions. But three institutions. The first is the family. We see this in Genesis chapter 2, that specifically the family is meant to incarnate a picture of Christ in the church as well as provide for the basic needs of its members. See, the family brings order through love. The second institution is the government. After the flood, God establishes a covenant with all flesh that is on the earth, and Noah and his family are meant to give structure and protection to citizens from injustice, mistreatment, and even from themselves. So this is the first sort of whisper of government or of kind of social order uh, that's meant to bring uh, order through organization and organizing social structure and systems and protections. And the third institution is the church. We see that in Acts 2. With the family, uh, there is love, and with the government, there's organization. But within the church, we bear witness. As followers of Jesus, we speak and live the words of Jesus, desiring to see order established in our interior lives as well as that of our friends and neighbors. The church brings order by bearing witness then to, the, to God's truth and beauty. All of this, along with families in the church, government is meant to restore order to God's creation. God has ordained government to serve this purpose, and the purpose of government is to restore order. And through the years, many different views have been offered as to how Christians should engage with the state, or in Paul's words, be subject to the governing authorities. Now, you're probably most familiar with the metaphor that Thomas Jefferson made popular, separation of church and state. Uh, and in fact, maybe just this whole conversation is sort of creating a bit of tension because of this idea that you are familiar with. See, Jefferson wanted to disestablish the Anglican Church in Virginia, and he wrote to a friend wanting to ensure what he called a wall of separation between religion and government. In this country, uh, that idea lives on in what's known as the Establishment Clause. It's part of the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting any establishment of religion. While that may seem to clear things up, it still leaves a lot to be desired because ultimately the Establishment Clause limits government. It's not an exposition of Romans 13. As stated differently, the Bill of Rights doesn't instruct Christians how to view or even participate as Christians in government. So how are we to do this? Well, John Stott saw four models. One, which is called Erastianism, which is a state controlled uh, when the state rather controls the church. We vote no to that. A theocracy. uh, The church controls the state. Also, we vote no, perhaps surprisingly. Uh, Constantianism, which is that institutions of government and church essentially trade favors, uh, which is also unhelpful in the long run. And then fourthly, there's participation where church and state respect and collaborate with one another. Paul undoubtedly has this fourth view in mind. After all, God has instituted government to bring order in the forms of safety and equity and justice, and Christians then should be about those things. That does not mean, though, of course, that we'll agree on every idea and policy. 
but as the writers of a fantastic book, which I commend to you, Compassion and Conviction, the way that they have put it is that the goal is to not have all Christians share the same exact politics, but to have all Christians think Christianly about politics. That's what Paul is doing in Romans 13. He's helping us think like Christians with respect to government. And so the God-given purpose of government is to bring order to God's world. But I know what you've been thinking, and I know probably what you've been thinking since the very beginning of this message. What do we do when government is not bringing order? Or rather, we can say in the same way that families um, are not always loving and churches are not always speaking and living the truth. They're not bearing witness appropriately. In the same way, government is not always fulfilling its purpose as an ordained institution. So what's our response to disorderly and unrighteous governments or governing officials To answer those important questions, let's go back to the creation narrative. So when God makes Adam and Eve, he makes them stewards of his creation. But when he does that, God doesn't give away ownership. See, when God institutes government, he does not give away authority. In the same way that God gives away creation to Adam and Eve as stewards, but God does not give over his ownership, he also institutes government but does not give away his authority. This is how God acts. He works through people. He works through us, but he remains supreme. So throughout history, we've seen brothers and sisters live in subjection to the government. However, they have ultimately remained true first, foremost, and forever to the authority of God. See, subjection to the government comes in subjection ultimately to the authority of God. We live in the wake of faithful women and men who have learned this, who have modeled this, who have submitted to government only up until the point it meant disobedience to God. See, Paul is most certainly creating space for civil disobedience. He does that through a theology of authority. Look again, Romans 13, verse 1. Let's look at that latter half. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. There is no authority except from God. And so if any authority is not reflective of his character, we ought to respond to that in varying ways. We ought to wait. Maybe we need to question, or we need to disobey, or even work against that authority. You see, in many respects, this idea flows out of what Paul said back in Romans 12, verse 19. Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. See, as Christians, we can live peaceably with all because God has ultimate authority. Sometimes that means we wait. We wait for divine wrath to bring order. We trust that in God's time, he will make everything right. But that's not our only hope. Other times, God's order comes more quickly. Specifically, he brings justice through family, government, and the church. This is why he's, he's built these institutions to bring his order, his world that he desires to come to bear here and now. This is why theologians talk about the kingdom of God as already but not yet. It's called an inaugurated eschatology. Inaugurated or progressively eschatology or study of the end time. You see, While there is much we are waiting for, much we are longing for that will only come when Jesus returns, his order is surely coming to fruition here and now 
through the family, through the church, and yes, even through government. That means human authority is always borrowed authority. Whether we exercise power or submit to it, we ought to keep this in mind. Jesus made this clear to Pontius Pilate. Turn to John 19, verse 9. Jesus puts Pilate on blast a little bit here as he waits for his execution. And the Roman magistrate is pretty frustrated because he knows Jesus is innocent, but the people want him to die. So look at this, John 19, verse 9. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Hear this. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So Pilate is certainly no longer submissive to God's purposes for government. He's not bringing order. He's dabbling in chaos and violence and disorder. He's even authoring these things. Jesus, of course, knew this. But Jesus also knew that Pilate wasn't really in charge. He knew all his governmental authority was borrowed from God. He says, from the one, the one rather from above. We see this in the early church as well. When leaders, apostles, teachers, preachers were thrown into jail, they were beaten and warned to stop proclaiming the gospel. You see, instead of protecting them, the governing powers used their authority to dissuade the church from fulfilling its God-given purpose to bear witness to the gospel. Meet me in Acts chapter 5. So if you're still in John, turn to the right. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then you get to Acts. If you get back to Romans, go back to the left. Acts chapter 5, verse 29. So the apostle Peter responds when this um, charge is coming from the governing officials to no longer proclaim the gospel. And it's almost always Peter who responds, bless his heart. He says, we must obey God rather than men. This is what we might call Christian civil disobedience. And it's not simply called for when government prevents the preaching of the gospel. See, when wages are withheld or people are mistreated or unable to vote, Christians have always waited, questioned, disobeyed, and even worked against any and every authority which did not reflect the authority of God, from whom all authority is ultimately borrowed. Dorothy Day, she refused to submit to the authorities of California who sought to justify their abusive treatment of migrant farm workers. After she became a Christian, she stood on the front lines with Cesar Chavez. Frederick Douglass, he loved Jesus and was instrumental in assisting and advising President Lincoln in the ratification of the 13th Amendment, which eventually freed enslaved black people in this country. Fannie Lou Hammer, she grew up in the Baptist church and became a leading voice and advocate in Mississippi during Jim Crow, ensuring that black people in the South were not only registered to vote, but able to vote come election day. See, these are a meager few samplings, if you will, of men and women who represent an ancient heritage of our faith. When government does not use its authority to bring order to God's world, we wait, we question, we disobey, we work against that authority because all authority is God's. And we'll address this tension a little bit more next week, but suffice for our time that when government is not bringing order, 
we remember that our ultimate authority is not a president, a party, or any policy. Rather, our authority is God. As we develop this understanding of our spiritual and national citizenry, we of course look to the cross. Because after Jesus' verbal fisticuffs with Pilate, he was murdered. He was unjustly executed by the government. Through his life and ministry, Jesus questioned, disobeyed, and worked against the disorder of his governing authorities. But he also waited. He subjected himself to them. And as he hung on the cross, citizens walked by insulting him and mocking him. Matthew 27, 40 tells us that you would have destroyed, you who rather would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. And even those governing authorities who put him on the cross said he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. Now, what's happening here in Matthew 27? Well, they are essentially saying, if God is really the supreme authority, then you, Jesus, would not be subjecting yourself to earthly powers, right? You wouldn't be waiting. Why would you die if you don't have to? Well, because of what Jesus told Pilate. Jesus knew the authority of God did not fit within their religious and earthly paradigms. Though his authority is expressed in this world, it is not bound by this world. If you're still in Acts chapter 5, look how Peter continues. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, God exalted at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. You see, even though we wait, we question, we disobey, we work against disorderly governing authorities, that does not mean we will win at least not in an earthly sense, at least not in an immediate sense. The writers of Compassion and Conviction explain the civility of the church deftly. They say, when in conflict, we should demonstrate that our public witness is more important than winning a political battle. Our witness is greater than winning. Church, in your engagement of government and politics, do you want to win more than you want to show love? In your apathy, perhaps, toward engaging this God-ordained institution, are you more concerned with your comfort and the preservation of earthly power than seeing God's order restored to all the world? You see, that's the other side of this consideration. For some of us, we need to remember that God is authoritative over government. For others of us, we need to remember God's purposes are often executed through government. And so, what if we waited with each other? Not because we necessarily agreed, but because we both knew the value of being subjected to the governing authorities and ultimately trusted God's authority. You know, in our church, 
Some people celebrated the so-called overturn of Roe v. Wade. Others lamented. It's one of the beautiful things about our church family. It's the diversity of thought. When we come to the scriptures and we look to the scriptures, we may arrive at different conclusions about what it looks like to live in this world and to engage certain ideas. But what if we just waited together in that, in that tension, as opposed to argued, which is more common practice today perhaps than ever before, knowing that one day both women and the unborn will be fully seen and fully taken care of in the Lord? What if we waited together? What if we questioned together? Not because we had the same skepticism, but because we knew that government is not supreme or perfect and ought to be held accountable. I saw on Twitter this last week that Justin Gibney, the president of the Ann campaign, said, if you can't find five to ten things wrong with your political party, you're probably indoctrinated. If you don't know your position's weaknesses or failings or shortcomings or the ways that you are wrong, what does that say about your view of government or politics or your perspective? What if we afforded one another uh, and even our political opponents the same opportunities to disobey and work against governing powers as we desired? And we didn't call them extreme or ridiculous simply because it was a different view. You see, this is how we maintain our witness rather than ensure our wins. We are subject to the governing authorities, but trust only God. That means we may suffer political losses for the sake of spiritual gains, which is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus suffered a loss for the sake of gain. He submitted to the governing authorities, even to the point of death, death on a cross. For those of us who put too much hope in government, the death of Christ should redirect our faith in God's ultimate authority. For those of us who remain disengaged from government, the death of Christ should reaffirm our understanding of God's purposes for government. You see, in a strange and mysterious way, God used even the corruption and disorder of government to bring about his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I think that's what the civility of the church ought to look like. Losing earthly battles for the sake of spiritual gains. We see government as one way. God is restoring order to his world, but we trust that God alone is the one who will bring restoration to all things.